Hi, this is Ron Hogan, and you're listening to Life Stories, a Beatrice podcast where I talk with memoir writers about their lives and the art of writing memoir. My guest today is Anthony Swafford. He is the author of, most recently, Hotels, Hospitals, and Jails, his second memoir, uh, which is published by 12 Books. So, welcome, Anthony. Thanks, Ron. One of the main themes of Hotels, Hospitals, and Jails is kind of coping with everything that your first memoir, Jarhead, kind of did to your life once it came out into the world. Yeah, well, it's it's uh, as much coping with what I wrote about in Jarhead as it is about the aftermath of that book. It's hard for me to really make temporal distinctions in terms of when things went awry, for instance. The book is very... It's, a, it's very much about me and my life, but it's also about my father, who was a veteran of the Vietnam War, and, and being the, the son of a veteran, and then myself being a veteran, and unteasing those different strands. And you know, much of the life that I, that I write about is in the aftermath of what was some success with the first book. <laughs> that success sends your life headed in one direction, but as you said, there's, there's clearly some unresolved issues that pop up in your 30s. That keep coming back. Yeah, they do. I mean, my father, you know, was a was a tough dude. He he was a disciplinarian, and he ran our home much like he might have a a platoon. And I was conceived while my father was on R and R from Vietnam, and you know, I always considered myself a war baby, and I was really. And that at some point in my teens, it dawned on me that when I figured this timing out, it dawned on me that you know. My father could have gone back to the jungles of Vietnam and not returned. And, and my father was one of those guys who, who very much brought the war back with him. And he never, uh, he never dealt with it. I think he still hasn't, really. And he was haunted by his, his combat experiences, by warfare. And that trickled down into the kind of home that we lived in. One of the things that keeps popping back, one of those unresolved traumas or, or issues that you keep circling back to is that incident when you were seven. You know, one of your chores was to, to clean the backyard from your dogs. And, you know, one week you missed a stool and well, you, you, you take it from there. You know, my father always, you know, like a good military man, he always inspected the work that we did once we reported back to him and told him that we were finished on this particular day, I missed a, missed a spot, and after my father had inspected the yard, he dragged me over toward it by my neck and uh, shoved my face down towards you know, this pile of dog excrement. Uh, you know, for many years, we're in this fight over, really, it was sort of uh, the, the rhetoric of it, because my father would say, you know, you claimed that I, that I shoved your face in this pile of dog excrement, but I didn't do that. I shoved your face toward it. And I uh, always was, a, what difference does that really make? I was a seven-year-old kid, and you were a 36-year-old man, and, you know, you, you, uh, you did this thing to me which was abusive, and you terrorized me. I really consider that a, an act of terror. You know, my father could admit fault, but I don't know that he ever was able to completely accept blame for the, the kind of father that he was and the kind of home life that he made for us. One of the, the times that you're discussing it, you talk about how he never, you know, he didn't apologize so much as he conceded what he had done. 
Yeah, he would say uh, things like, well, yeah, I suppose that if I treated children the way I treated you guys then, today, it would be considered abusive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, which is just giving himself a, you know, a get-out-of-jail-free card. And my, you know, my father you know, had a pretty uh, haunting childhood himself, and, and I think he relied on on that. I, I imagine that at some level he, because he remembers that event in the backyard and he seems to remember it clearly, he must have been troubled by it. He, he must have realized that he'd gone beyond the pale. And I think the only way that he was able to uh, defend himself against himself was to say, well, look how bad I had it. You know, this really kind of gothic, southern gothic, southern Baptist upbringing, fire and brimstone. Uh, his own mother you know, died when he was a few weeks old. And I think that's how he defends his actions. Mm-hmm. He can always say to us, well, I had it off worse. I had it worse, a lot worse than you did. Yeah, although we sort of the emphasis in, in the conversation so far has been on, look at these horrible things your dad did to you. And, and there's some of that in the book, particularly like, you know, you were showing friends the blow-up letter, that you, the curse letter that your dad sent you about everything that you had done wrong as a son that brought you to this point. And then you, you step back and you write, no one else will, will write about my father, so I am his writer. And in the act of writing, I hope to become again his loving son. And you know, even with all the, um, the minefield of a relationship that you're describing, there is still that, that loving core with the relationship. There is, there is. It's not really, you know, it's not a book about uh, my poor, sad childhood. You know, that's one aspect of the book is, is the kind of father that he was, this kind of son I'd become. And you know, I think one of the ticking clocks in the book is, and it certainly was for me in my own life, you know, am I going to pull myself out of this place, become more than just a son, become a father myself, learn from this canvas you know that my father has painted for me that is pretty problematic and and despite all of that of course i love the man you know i I learned some things from him that i carry with me and some of them are good things and others of them are you know could be awful things unless i I keep them in check and, and i and i alter the course of you know how men are fathers in my family how do you feel that that's going the memoir ends pretty much with the birth of your daughter. So it ends on that hopeful note. Has it been working out? Yeah, it has been. I, you know, I, I love being a father. I'm a, I'm a much different man than my father was, and I'm also in a different point in my life. I, I was born when my father was 28 or 29. I was his third kid, and he just came home from combat. Yeah, I was 41 when my daughter was born. I have a really supportive and loving wife and we have uh, you know, a core relationship that's strong you know I, I look at fatherhood as something that's that I'm lucky I'm lucky to be able to be the father to this baby girl and it's 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 an honor and, and a pleasure certainly there are difficult moments and there you know raising a baby takes a lot of manpower and it takes <laughs> It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of mental energy. You know, people offer you all of those cliches about how your life will change, and they're all completely true. But you know, my daughter's about to be one, and it's been the best year of my life. And, and I've also I wrote the best parts of this book after she was born. I think, I think I've done 
my best writing since she was born. Something happened really the moment she was born and I held her in my hands and I realized that um, it didn't matter. I'll keep writing books and I'll do other kinds of kind of creative work. None of that will really matter as much as the kind of father that I am to this little baby girl. Like that's the most important thing. That will be the most important thing on you know, the day I die. Another theme that pops up in the book, um, you know, we talked a bit at the, uh, at the beginning about the immediate aftermath of, of the publication of Jarhead. One of the th- uh, things that, that pops up a lot in the book is, you know, when Jarhead came out, we were back at war, back in the Gulf. But it was a much different war this time around. There's the chapter where you go to the, uh, to the VA hospital and then to the party afterwards. And part of that is, is obviously like a genuine concern on your part for how these Marines are being treated. But was there also any sort of pressure in terms of the types of writing that you were doing post-Jarhead? Was there that sort of attempt to, by other people, whether it was editors or whoever, to sort of pigeonhole you into the, oh, let's send Jarhead out to go look at what the, you know, the Marines are doing again? Oh, yeah, there was a lot of that, and I, I fought against it. And, and it may have been stupid of me to fight against it, but I, you know, I was asked by... Uh, you know, dozens of places to you know, go to Iraq, go to Afghanistan. And I thought, well, you know, I went to combat once and I had a sniper rifle and I was with some highly trained Marines and I made it out. And I'm not really sure I want to go to a combat zone, you know, with a sat phone and a laptop. <laughs> and uh, I, I regret that now, I've got to say, I, because, you know, I don't, I don't really know what, what it was like this time. I, I know it secondhand. I know it from all the reading I've done and I know it from... Uh, these young men and women I know who serve. You know, I didn't want to be that guy. I didn't want to be the jarhead guy who's always writing about the military. And so I fought that, and, you know, perhaps that was a wrong move on my part. I probably should have just embraced it. That visit to uh, to Bethesda, you know, was under the flag of this great organization called Disabled American Veterans. You know, they're, they're great supporters of injured veterans, and had just asked me to uh, go hang out on this floor one day, talk to injured Marines and their families, and you know, sign some copies of my book. And I, I wasn't there, you know, to write about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I came home from it, and I, I could not write about it. It was, it was very, uh, it, it was a vivid experience, and it was at that point, it was the closest that I'd come to uh, knowing the reality of these of these new wars. You know, one of the the, the funny things about that is that. You know, or the few funny things about about it, I should say, is that, you know, to these Marines, you're Jarhead. Yeah. <laughs> and there must have been so much of that in the years immediately following publication. People who are expecting Jarhead 2 are, are going to be pretty surprised by what they see. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I think it's a it's a natural progression for me, like, mm-hmm. you know, as, as a writer and as a man. And it may seem... Less natural to the to the casual reader, but I, you know, Jarhead is very much about you know trying to find one's way in the world in a certain vocation at a certain time in my life. You know, questions of of manhood and meaning, and you know the, the, this book is is playing with those same kinds of questions. I I don't think it's a radical departure, but there certainly aren't you know sniper rifles all over the place. <laughs> in between the these two memoirs, um, you had written a novel. What was it like for you to sort of shift back into that non-fictional voice again? Was there any sort of like awkward transition in terms of like trying to 
get back into the voice uh, or, or the memoir type voice? After Exit A was published, I started another novel. I'd been working on that for probably, let me do the math, I've been working on that for about two years and I had a hundred or so pages. It was, it was it was kind of slow going and then, and I, I didn't really, I wasn't thinking about writing a memoir and then I took the first of these RV trips with my father and I came back and I was, I was, you know, I took some notes during the trip and I came home and I started a little bit of writing and I thought, wait a second, you know, writer and his father, both vets in an RV, trucking across America, this might make a good book. Mm-hmm. And then I did the very mercenary writerly thing of, of uh, going on more trips with my father. I wanted, I, I, you know, I, I didn't want to write a book like I had written Jarhead, but... I've got to, I must admit, in early drafts, uh, this book was much more episodic. I had many shorter chapters, which is exactly what Jarhead is like. And it, and it took me, it took me a while to, to break myself of that habit. You have to teach yourself anew how to write a book each time. You know, every book must be written different if it's going to be interesting. And so I couldn't, I couldn't totally, re- I, I couldn't rely on, on, the sorts of formal innovations that I'd used for Jarhead. And I wanted to at first because that would have made it very, you know, that would have made it an easier task to finish this book. But eventually I had to, I had to drop that and fall into some longer, meatier narrative. You talk about, you know, that sort of mercenary decision to, uh, to go out on the road again and again with your dad. And at the same time, your dad wanted to take these trips too. Uh, you know, he talks a lot in the in the memoir about how he wants to go on these trips with you or to have these conversations with you to as he puts it you know get the venom out right but at the same time it's like he doesn't really want to have these conversations once they actually get started i think he he wants to tell me that he's willing to have them and then he wants that to to be enough uh, and in the end i don't you know he, he for most of the book uh, he doesn't really want to you know, take responsibility for his actions yeah, he's a, he was he's a hard-headed dude, and he he ended up you know remaining hard-headed. And I think I've cracked the code of my father at the end of the book. You know, and I, I may be wrong. I know that you know, one of the major major problems for me with him, you know, and it's outlined uh, pretty extensively in the book, is that you know, my father didn't attend my brother's funeral, and I finally, actually, only recently, received from him uh, a, something that could be called an actual apology you know, for not attending my brother's funeral. But that was only, you know, in the aftermath of this book coming out. He was still kind of hard-headed, and you know, his excuse was that I, you know, that I would never understand. And I, once I, uh, you know, saw my father holding my daughter, I knew that he was right, that I would never, I, would, I hope to God that I would never understand the crushing loss of the death of a child. You know, your arguments about that are some of the rawest passages in the memoir. And they remind me of another line here. Everyone must understand, when someone writes a memoir, people get scorched. It's not just your father. I think there are there are sections in this memoir that must be really hard for other members of your family to read as well. Yeah, sure. Um, my father was uh, promiscuous during marriage and admitted those things to me. And I write about some of that here. Mm-hmm. I, my parents have been divorced for uh, two decades now, but they 
They remained friends. I, I don't think it was a secret. No, no one uh, in my family thought my father had been an angel. But I wouldn't have uh, created a, a, a complete portrait of him without uh, without writing about that stuff. And I, and I you know, I, I admit that my father's virility and sexual prowess, in a way, you know, is ends up being exciting for me. And I and I go on and. Um, you know, despite myself, I end up uh, kind of following in his footsteps for, for a few years in terms of that boorish behavior. I think in terms of, you know, the people who get scorched when you write a memoir is that, you know, you, you probably get burnt about as badly as anybody else. You're, you're not forgiving of your your wild oats years. No, I'm not. And I, I think, yeah, I mean, I, I, hope the, I hope the close reader realizes that, that I... I think I do. I am the most scorched at the end of this book, and and I should be. I should be the one who's who's most naked on the page. There's that surface level in which you're describing some of those, um, you know, lost years is maybe a little hyperbolic, but you know that period in the in the mid 2000s when you know you're talking about stuff like, yeah, look at me, I flew out two women to a, you know, yeah. to, to Japan and been, been carrying on with both them, and neither one of them knows about the and it's. So, you know, there's that surface level of, you know, look how cool cool and awesome this is, but that's a very thin surface. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very thin. I, mean, I, I look like a fool, you know, and, and, I, and I say, I can't exactly quote myself now, I say what I was, you know, the language that I was using was a language of despair. It was a very despairing kind of behavior. It was dishonest and um, unhealthy. It was fun, sure. It was a lot of fun for a few years, but that kind of behavior can't go on. It left you burnt out and retreating to the mountains and sounds like on the verge of suicide for a good period of time. I was suicidal and burnt out and, you know, it hit a real a real kind of psychological bottom. For a while there I was I wasn't sure that I'd make my way out of it. At the same time though, the you know, there was when you hit bottom and where you hit bottom that you met Krista, your, who is now your wife. It, it is, yeah. I was living in a cabin on the side of a mountain in the Catskills, you know, trying to well, working working on this book and you know, working on a novel, mostly mostly alone, trying to disentangle myself from some alliances in the city uh, with past girlfriends. You know, about that time, uh, a mutual friend said, "Hey, come out to dinner with me upstate." And this friend of mine is in from the city and. And we met, and, and we had a kind of magical kind of first dinner. She was funny. She spent some years on a military base, uh, knew what the Battle of Tarawa was. I could see, you know, it had lived some, it had some dark years herself and, and would understand and, and, and be forgiving of, of my past. And it, it was something that I had a problem with a few times as uh you know, people being okay with my past. Both at the end of the memoir and today, you're emotionally and professionally out of the hole that you had found yourself in. Where do you go from here? Yeah, I, I keep writing books, and I am uh, might do some TV writing. With a friend of mine, I'm try, trying to uh, get, a, get a TV show going. And, you know, write, write about things that I care about and people I care about. I, I'd like to do a nonfiction book uh, about uh, injured vets and the life of an injured vet, you know, coming, coming back from, from an injury and what that life is like, what the world is like. Also, you know, um, I'm really fascinated by the, the kinds of medical advances that are made during, during war times and the way that, you know, medicine, medical advancements during combat, how they fold over into the civilian world. And, just sort of the ethics of that as well.
Well, those sound like some projects that we can look forward to in the years to come. In the meantime, the new memoir is Hotels, Hospitals, and Jails. We've been talking with Anthony Swafford. This has been Life Stories. Thanks for listening, and please tune in again soon.